Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of Leading Australian Podcast Agency and 2021 Australian Podcast Awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. If the pandemic taught us anything, it's that medical practitioners are simply the best. Whether it's caring for sick children, dealing with patient abuse, or doning heavy PPE for years during COVID-19, there's no doubt that we've all become that much more appreciative of the absolutely incredible work that doctors and nurses do for us. But whilst they're out there caring for everyone else, who's looking out for them? After losing a doctor colleague to suicide, young medical student and mental health advocate, Tani Bridson, knew that change had to come from the inside. In today's open and honest conversation, Tani shares her journey in founding Hand in Hand Peer Support, a free and confidential service that provides struggling medical professionals a safe and supportive network. The founder also explores the toxic and taboo hierarchical systems in the medical industry, the importance of recognising where your emotions stem from and finding people who are in your corner. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, firstly, welcome. And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado, welcome Tani. Tani, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. 
So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the incredible work you're doing in the healthcare sector, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you. I don't feel like I'm that exciting, but thank you. It's a nice compliment. (laughs) Of course. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a doctor who's training to be a psychiatrist. So I'm a doctor in training. And I also have quite, well, obviously being studying to be a psychiatrist means that I have an interest in mental health, but more specifically around the time of COVID, was able to use my interest in kind of doctors and healthcare workers well-being positive way to come up with an idea that is all about supporting healthcare workers during this incredibly difficult time. Oh my goodness. It's been such a tough time, especially for healthcare workers. And I'm so excited that your business and your not-for-profit services and supports, you know, people within your industry. And so I can't wait to dive deeper into your business. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? I feel like this will probably be very unexpected just because of like the medical kind of industry and where most of my friends and colleagues kind of come from. I'm actually from a small country town in the North Queensland region, which most people have probably not heard of, but both of my parents had challenging childhoods. So my mum is an immigrant from Sicily and she came over with her parents when she was a child, not speaking a word of English. And she actually never finished high school. And my dad, he grew up in the middle of nowhere, basically, a town or a rural area called Croydon. And his parents were cattle farmers and they were not very well off and couldn't afford for him to actually finish school. So he also didn't finish high school. And so both of my parents are not university educated. My dad now works as a Intel officer, (laughs) which is probably not what you'd expect. And he actually was always quite good at writing and he's much better than me with English and literature. So he actually ended up getting a job as a journalist and had his own radio station for 20 plus years, which he still does as a kind of part-time in his spare time. He has a radio show just in our little town. And my mum was between being stay-at-home, but also she used to work at Coles because everyone needs money to put food on the table and stuff. So yeah, that's kind of my background. It's so fascinating, Tani, how much how our parents grew up affects us and what we end up doing. And it's so interesting to hear that for you, you know, your parents really didn't come from much. And so therefore, you know, this idea of higher education and probably this idea of becoming a doctor was just so far-fetched and and whatnot. So I guess for you growing up, what was the mentality around school, education, kind of what career path you want to do, you know, what was that? conversation like with your parents for you? I think my dad's family placed a really big importance on education. I think there's this part of him that always regrets he didn't get to go further. I picked up on that, I think, from a young child that there was this kind of sense that he really wanted me to be able to have every opportunity in the world. My mum's family is more of the kind of traditional probably didn't think that girls would go, you know, all the way through school and to uni and be a doctor. They come from that kind of generation where 
women didn't go to university and, you know, they were the people that got married and had kids. And so I had quite differing, (laughs) kind of two very different family styles that I grew up with. When I think back, I have these memories of people telling me that I wouldn't be able to do things or I wasn't smart enough or I wasn't good enough. The story I always tell is going to a high school parent-teacher interview where my mum came, my dad couldn't, and she had her Coles uniform on and, and one of the teachers said, oh, you don't want to end up a checkout chick like her, do you? And that's, you know, kind of the narrative that I heard growing up and as hard as it was, and I think it had a big impact on my kind of own self-belief, but it also sort of drove me because I really wanted to prove these people wrong. (laughs) And, you know, I really wanted to do it for my parents, like, because they didn't get to do it. But I also wanted to do it to like, show these people that I didn't care what they said or what they thought I was going to prove them wrong. (laughs) How do we step up and go after what we want when we feel like the world is against us, like just like what you experienced, you know, everyone thinking you're not good enough, you probably thinking you're not good enough, you know. How do we gain the courage to go after what we want when that's the case? Yeah, I don't know. I think growing up in a small country town, things like mental health and that were never really spoken about and probably still aren't spoken about enough. And I think for a really long time when I was younger, I was incredibly anxious. You know, I doubted myself all the time. And I don't think I really understood that that was anxiety or that other people understood that, you know, I was like constantly battling this self-doubt and this like anxiety that I wasn't good enough. And I think the only way that I could get through it was the anxiety would only go if I, you know, made it through the exams or I made it through an assignment or, you know, I was so like perfectionistic and stuff that that was the only way I could kind of contain myself and get through things was to just focus and and push through. But I think, you know, looking back, I was like an incredibly anxious child. And I think that's why when I do talk to people now, I tell them about the real story because I've been asked to go back to my hometown and my school and stuff and talk. And, you know, I could just go there and say, oh, I've, you know, done this stuff and won this award and it was all so easy. But what's the point in doing that? Because then I'm just telling a lie. Like I'm just kind of, you know, living this lie that everything's perfect when it's not. And I think it's important to show people that it doesn't matter where you come from or what's happened in your life, that you can overcome it. At what point for you did you feel like you began or started to overcome it, all of that anxiety and that fear? I think there's still a part of me that is very anxious and is very, you know, I I doubt myself a lot. (laughs) And um, I, I don't know if I've ever really gotten over that. I think there's always this feeling that I'm some sort of imposter, that I'm not good enough to be in the field that I'm in, that I'm not worthy of, you know, being a doctor or doing all this stuff. But I think maybe what does help is actually recognizing those emotions and recognizing that, you know, where they come from and what they stem from. And I don't know if I'll ever be completely free of anxiety. I think it's, you know, it's just something that's kind of ingrained in me, but I think being able to recognize it and call it for what it is and also get help is really important, you know. I've needed to get help and I think it's important for me to show that so that other people also feel like they can get help. 
Absolutely. You guys can't see me, but I'm nodding along furiously because your story reminds me of like, you know, a lot of so many I've heard before and of my own as well. You know, I think I think back to growing up and all the pressures around graduating with a good end to score and then, you know, getting into that course and just the level of anxiety that I feel like so many of us experience and I most definitely experience on the back of my year 12 jumper, it was stress head and everyone was like, yep, that <laughs> makes sense, you know, so... I mean, I think what you deal with is something that so many of us do, you know, and especially as women as well around that imposter syndrome piece. You know, what would you say to your 20-year-old self or 18-year-old self who was just in the perhaps in the depths of dealing with all of this and maybe for, you know, not the first or second time but the fifth time and couldn't find a way out? you know, what advice would you give to her? I think looking back, what would have been helpful is actually reaching out and getting help earlier because I think the longer you leave it, the harder it gets to break those habits and those thought patterns. And, you know, now I just turned 30, which is a big scary number for me. (laughs) But, you know, like I, I feel like I would have been a lot happier and a lot calmer and a lot more able to enjoy things if I'd been able to get help when I was much younger. And so I think that's something that I really advocate for is that early intervention. And it's, you know, it's easy to look back and say, oh, well, I should have listened to people telling me to calm down and to not be so stressed, et cetera, et cetera. But I think back then there was no way I was even if people were telling me to stop stressing and, you know, that it was all going to be fine. I just, I didn't believe them. And I think part of it is because I needed that extra, extra kind of support. For our peers out there listening, where can we go to get that support? You know, who should we be turning to? Is it just, you know, speaking to amazing humans like yourself who will ultimately be psychiatrists and whatnot, or where can we turn to for that? I mean, there's so many ways and it depends because sometimes all we need is a friendly ear to kind of listen, you know, somebody who kind of understands what we're going through. And that's where that kind of peer support is really important. Having your peers to be able to understand what you're going through can make the world of difference. But obviously there's also times, you know, if you're so anxious or or so overwhelmed by whatever emotion it might be that you can't function, obviously then people probably need that extra level of support where they need to see a doctor or a psychologist or even a psychiatrist if it's, you know, more of an emergency kind of thing. So I think there's lots of ways to get help from having a coffee date with a friend to, you know, making sure that everyone has a GP. I think that's a really, really important thing is that everyone should have their own GP, regardless of who they are. Even if they're a GP, they should have their own GP. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, so true. Well, to dive a bit deeper into your story, you went off to study medicine and whatnot. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about that time there when you were at university, obviously the first in your immediate family to go. Besides from, I'm guessing, the emotional stress and strain and and anxiety what did you learn about yourself during that time and I guess what you wanted to do with your life I think initially like just moving away was really challenging like I'd never lived away or even really stayed away from home and I mean my university was only a kind of five hour drive 
or an hour flight from home. So it's not like I, you know, came all the way down to Melbourne or Tasmania or wherever. Like I was still in North Queensland. But I think initially, you know, that kind of shock of being on your own was like a really challenging thing for me and kind of having to fend for yourself, even though at college, you know, they have food and stuff for you. And I think I probably started to fall into quite bad self-care patterns, you know, because I, I didn't have that kind of structure around me anymore or somebody like reminding me to sleep and to eat and, you know, to do all these things that keep us healthy. And so I definitely noticed when I was at university, and I, I think it progressively got worse as I went through the years, was that my self-care was not great. And I would stay up really late studying and then just be exhausted all day going to lectures and doing stuff. And, you know, I was so scared because I didn't think I belonged there. I didn't feel like the other kids, like I felt like I was this, you know, outsider. I wasn't from a medical background or, you know, and I think people kind of project their own anxieties onto you as well when they're anxious. So people are obviously maybe different than me, but feeling maybe they don't belong either. And they would say things about, you know, their families or where they're from or how smart they were. And, you know, that would just kind of add to my my own anxiety that I wasn't good enough and I wasn't doing enough. And I think I just got into really bad habits of not sleeping enough, not eating enough. And, you know, I'd come home in the university holidays and be like a shell of a person <laughs> and have to, you know, build myself up again over that uni break period to then get back to some sort of baseline so that I could function again for the next semester. And I think there reaches a point where, with medicine anyway, you stop having holidays in the middle. You kind of only have one week here and there. I think eventually it it took its toll and I didn't have the breathing space to kind of get myself back to this baseline or to get myself well enough in between kind of semesters or terms or whatever you want to call it. You would think in a caring profession that it's not an issue, but there is so much bullying and harassment in medicine and healthcare, and there is just such a hierarchical kind of system that the outside world doesn't see. And as a student, you are the lowest of the low forms. And, you know, many of us had sort of supervisors who bullied us or treated us really badly and that they're constantly sort of saying to you, you're not good enough or making you feel not good enough or yelling at people during lectures or picking them out one by one and then berating them in front of everyone because they couldn't answer a question right. And they're not working hard enough and you need to be near burnt out if to be working hard enough or you're not doing enough. You know, that kind of stuff was still accepted a few years ago when I was at uni and I think still is accepted in a lot of universities and hospitals and it's something I'm really not for and very much against but it is still very much there and it all ultimately took its toll and I passed out when I was at university and a small regional city you know you get treated at the hospital that you're the med student at which you know has its own challenges and issues and basically I was in the emergency department and One of the doctors that I knew, one of the people I'd been on placement with like the week before, came out and sort of said that I had an eating disorder. They diagnosed me with anorexia and basically I wasn't leaving and I was going to get treated there. And 
I'd suddenly gone from being a student to being a patient and not just a patient, but a patient who was basically, you know, told I have to stay and I have to get treatment. And that for me was like a very confronting, very challenging experience. Can't even imagine. Wow. You know, I think, and especially the fact that you got treated at the same hospital, obviously, of which you were working at, you know, where to from there, you know, when we hit rock bottom and we, from a health perspective, especially, I think that's truly, you know, when your body's telling you that's when you know, how do we pick up the pieces? You know, how did you progress from there? And what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who perhaps have had something similar or in a different context happen to them? I I think for a little while there, I probably did lose all my confidence and just feel like it was game over. Like I was never going to make it out of this hole that I felt like I'd created for myself. And I think in some ways, feeling like I'd hit rock bottom in a way helped me. I mean, I remember talking with the doctors to the university and, you know, the university basically telling me that they didn't think I would be able to finish or to graduate, despite always in the past having got HDs and Ds that was their kind of solution. And it was kind of up to me if I wanted to continue or not, but I was, you know, basically told that they didn't think I would pass. And I think almost being at that rock bottom, I remember just turning to mum and saying, I don't know if I'll pass. (laughs) Like, I don't know what will happen from here, but I don't want to give up without a fight. And I think I just felt like I had to go out fighting if I was going to go out. Like I I definitely lost complete confidence in myself, but I wasn't going to give up. Like I wasn't going to let those people tell me that I couldn't do something. And that was really important to me to know that if I went out, it was because I failed or I didn't do well enough, but not because somebody was telling me to give up. That had always kind of been my thing. How do we gain the courage to keep going when we just feel like we have done everything that we possibly can do and here we are still in a heap. Yeah. It's really hard, especially when you kind of feel like the world is against you. But I think most of us during those times can find someone who's an ally. And I was really lucky that I had one of the professors from the university. He barely knew me, but he sort of saw a person who was not doing so well and in a sea of kind of 400 students or however many there are decided to help me (laughs) and you know had that sort of belief in me and I think that was probably something that I needed because I didn't have belief in myself anymore and I needed somebody else to kind of show me that they believed in me and support me and be that kind of person that would, you know, be there to support me through this stuff. So I think finding your allies or your friends or your family or whoever it is that's going to be in your corner is so important because when you hit that rock bottom, it's so hard to find the belief in yourself and to to push yourself. You know, as driven as I was to prove these people wrong, I needed those support systems around me to also help get me through. And they absolutely did that. Oh, my goodness. I mean, talk to us a little bit about the progression of your kind of studies and then career from there. 
you know, and then I'd love to dive into obviously your business um, and the launch of that. I think after that, my perception of what I liked in medicine changed. I think I went to thinking about, well, how could I use the experience that I'd have to kind of help other people? And I think that's where I definitely got more of an interest in things like mental health and psychiatry. And I did a couple of elective terms in mental health and I I started doing some research in mental health. And um, some people probably think it's a bad thing that I've had my own experience and I've, you know, it's driven me to kind of go down the mental health route. But I like to hope or think that it can be a useful thing and that maybe I can understand where my patients are coming from more because I've been the patient too. So yeah, I kind of fell into mental health, but then I also obviously always had this interest in kind of improving the conditions for doctors and healthcare workers from my own experiences. But I grew up in a small town where we kind of didn't really have that much medical cover. One of the other things that really influenced me was actually losing one of my general practitioners who looked after me but also looked after my family to suicide when I was a med student. And I think that was another kind of reminder that healthcare work is a human and actually there is so much stress placed on doctors and healthcare workers and, you know, doctors have higher rates of suicide and mental illness compared to the general population and I think it just drove me down that road that I wanted to do something to make sure that our colleagues had support systems in place. And then obviously COVID happened and things got even kind of worse (laughs) for healthcare workers all across the globe. And it's kind of like one of those silver linings where COVID's obviously been terrible, but I think if there's one good thing maybe to come out of it, it's that the enormous pressures and stresses on healthcare workers has maybe finally started to be recognized you know on a wider scale and I think that's ultimately what allowed us to kind of get our project up and running and off the ground was that there was this increased recognition of the issues that healthcare workers faced. I couldn't agree more I think COVID only brought to light or shed light on an issue or, you know, a situation that was always had been there and obviously was just stressed even more during that time. Talk to us about how the idea for hand-in-hand peer support, your not-for-profit, came about and what were those first few steps that you took to really get it off the ground? So how do we go about taking those first few steps to get our businesses or ideas off the ground? When I think back, it all happened so quickly and maybe it's just being in the right place at the right time or having the right idea at the right time. But I think, you know, obviously my experiences drove me down that path and I really wanted to do things for my colleagues to help improve things. And when COVID came about, I was already, you know, trying to do things to support doctors' well-being and medical students' well-being. And I just remember talking to a few of my colleagues, in fact, the same professor that, you know, was my support when I was really unwell. I still work with him now. And he and I were both sort of like, well, surely there's going to be something. Surely there's something out there. And we looked into it and realized there was nothing. There was no kind of support networks at that point in time, you know, available to try and help healthcare workers. And so the idea just kind of evolved from we need to do something 
to what can we do, what's going to be most effective, you know, what are people missing? And it was sort of like, well, we're all in this sort of lockdown. We can't talk to each other, can't eat together, can't work together. We have masks and all this stuff. Well, that's the thing we're missing is actually being able to talk to people about what's going on. And that's how the idea of peer support came about because that was the thing that people were missing out on most by the kind of COVID restrictions. So we wanted to bring that back into the workplace and make sure that people had a safe space in which they could talk about things that were happening. And we kind of put the idea out on social media. And I just remember waking up the next morning and we had like 400 people join this like Facebook thing that we'd created within 24 hours. And it was just like a bit of a preview into, I guess, how much people felt that they needed something there to support them. And it kind of just took off from there. Like we found other people who were interested, who could help us, you know, get this idea from an idea into, well, how do we create an actual system where people can sign up and, you know, ask for help and how are we going to do this? How are we going to structure it? How are we going to make sure they get the help that they need if they need something more than peer support? And it all just kind of evolved very quickly and developed into this peer support network. (laughs) Um, But it, you know, I think it was a case of being in the right place at the right time as well and having this idea at a time when this was really needed. Oh, well, look, Tanae, I mean, such good conversation. So many more questions I could ask you, but I am mindful of your time. So I have a couple of final questions for you. And the first one is, what has been your greatest failure and win to date? I still sometimes feel like the experience of having this diagnosis and having it hang over me and be something that I still am battling with now often feels like a failure (laughs) but I also know it's not a failure and I think probably my biggest success I would say is actually getting the courage to talk about it and bring it out to light and hopefully you know use this thing that I find really challenging to support other people and to show other people that it's okay to be vulnerable and to get help and to not be perfect because none of us are perfect. And I definitely don't think having a mental illness is a failure for anyone, Or, but I think I'm just a very harsh critic and I still often feel quite a lot of shame and stigma around having this illness that it does at times make me feel like a failure. But I'm also grateful that I've finally had the courage to kind of come out and say that I'm not perfect and that I need help just like the next person. Yes. Oh my goodness. I so resonate with that and stuff being perfect, honestly. (laughs) How how far does it really get us? Oh my goodness. Tani, look, over the last two and a half years in business, you've, and obviously over the last many years studying and in medicine, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. And most recently you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Oh, it's really cheesy, but I think you know, don't listen to the critics, like keep pushing. And, you know, even though it's hard, you have to have a little bit of belief in yourself. And I fully acknowledge how difficult that is being somebody who has complete imposter syndrome. 
But I think, you know, in order to challenge the people that are telling you you can't do things, you have to have a little bit of belief somewhere in yourself and a little bit of oomph to get you through those challenges. I think have fun as well, like have more fun when you're young because I feel like I've spent so long trying to be perfect and, you know, failing in inverted commas at being perfect that I forgot to stop and kind of have fun along the way and to live my life and I feel like that's something that I really regret is missing out on all those kind of uni experiences and things that people do when they're young because I was just so hell-bent on not failing, you know. And I think probably my last one is there's this famous Winston Churchill quote about, you know, failure and being failing at something isn't final. And I think being okay with failing And not in a bad way, but, you know, just in a way that teaches us we don't have to be perfect. And we're not always going to be winners. We're not always going to be the best. We're not always going to get things that we try at or jobs that we want or positions that we want. And that's okay. That doesn't make us less of a human, you know. (laughs) So, so true. Couldn't agree more. Look, Tani, before I ask you the final question, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, you know, for showing us, and particularly us, you know, ambitious, young, millennial, Gen Z, that, you know, if we have this desire to want to show ourselves and prove to ourselves that we can do it, we actually can make that happen. We can go out there and chase whatever dream we desire and we can ultimately make that our reality. And for that, we really appreciate you. I know it sounds so cheesy, but it is so true. Like, I still feel like I haven't achieved things because I have that constant self-doubt. But 12-year-old me wouldn't have thought it was possible to ever graduate as a doctor. And it was just that sheer kind of pushing myself and never giving up attitude that I think has got me here. It obviously has you know, made things difficult for me at times. <laughs> but, you know, I also think in some ways it is important to be that, you know, stubborn, determined person. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Tali, the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, and that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I think it has a lot of value and I think, well, for me, obviously something that I valued and thought was important was looking after my colleagues' mental health and I guess the thing that I really, you know, valued is not losing more of my colleagues to suicide and that's the ultimate thing that drove me to come up with this idea around hand-in-hand peer support because ultimately I value my colleagues and I don't want to lose any more people. You know, I've seen too many people get lost and might not always be to suicide. It might be to other things, burnout, you know, other illnesses, but I want to be the change in the profession that we keep asking for. And if no one else is going to do it, then I guess, you know, we can't keep complaining. We have to be the change. Tani, oh my goodness. Thank you so much. It has been so good to have you on the show and to chat. Where can we learn more about you and hand-in-hand peer support? 
We have a website and we're on every sort of major social media platform. I mean, it might sound like a business and I guess it is a business, but we are a complete non-for-profit. So everybody that is with us is volunteering in addition to their full-time jobs. So I'm always incredibly grateful to the people that are supporting us because we couldn't do it without the amazing volunteers and, you know, the people that then come along and want to support us and follow us and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. Peers.